the History Channel original podcast. Did you uh, ever have a thought at this time that maybe Lee had killed the president? My heart goes down because I think maybe this was Lee. Thursday, November 22nd, 1963. 22-year-old Marina Oswald is still sleeping when her husband, Lee, rises at dawn. He gets dressed quietly so as not to wake her or Mrs. Payne, the Quaker woman Marina and the kids have been staying with. He pulls a wad of cash from a pocket, $170, almost everything he has to his name. He slips it into his wife's dresser drawer, along with a note to buy their daughter some new shoes. Reaching for the doorknob, he catches a glimpse of the wedding ring on his finger and pauses. He and Marina had gone through many fights before, but until last night, he always believed things would get better. Carefully, he places the little gold band in a teacup. He takes one last look at Marina as she sleeps before closing the door behind him. It's about 7.15 a.m. when Lee steps outside. He's carrying a long, narrow parcel that he's picked up from the garage. He's heading to the home of a neighbor, Buell Frazier. The men work together at the Texas School Book Depository, and Frazier promised to give him a lift. Frazier often gave him rides to visit Marina. Lee didn't have a car of his own. But those trips were usually on weekends. And so to get ahead of any questions, Oswald has concocted an excuse. What's the package, Lee? Frazier asks when Oswald places the parcel in the back seat of the car. Curtain rods, Oswald replies. The drive today seems to drag on forever. Oswald is quiet, trying not to invite conversation. When they finally pull into the parking lot, he rushes from the car without saying so much as goodbye. From the car, Buell Frazier watches him hurry into the building carrying his mysterious package. The next time he'll lay eyes on him, it won't be in the break room or at his desk. It'll be on the evening news, his mugshot staring out over a caption reading, Lee Harvey Oswald, accused of murdering the President of the United States. I'm historian Steve Gillen, and this is 24 Hours After, The JFK Assassination, Episode 4, The Assassin. In our last episode, we followed Bobby Kennedy, who worried that he may have indirectly caused JFK's death. Today, we meet the man who, as far as we know, actually pulled the trigger. Lee Harvey Oswald was a Marine sharpshooter, a Soviet defector, and according to him, a patsy, an innocent man pinned for an unspeakable crime. He is the only person ever arrested for the assassination of John F. Kennedy. And within 48 hours of allegedly pulling the trigger, he too was dead. It's a story so strange, so riddled with questions, that 60 years later, historians and conspiracy theorists alike are still trying to make sense of it all. It was a matter of circumstances and chances and coincidences that put him where he was, and he was desperate. You're trying to tell me that one person who's a little off balance 
was able to pull off this massive crime and now you're gonna to try to convince me that a second person who was a little off balance also happened to just have everything fall perfectly into place with the perfect storm to get there and kill Oswald on his own for his own motivation on Sunday? Who was Lee Harvey Oswald? How did he manage to kill one of the most heavily protected people on earth? How did he escape? And how was he finally brought to justice? A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Twelve twenty-eight p.m. Lee Oswald is perched at a sixth-floor window of the book depository, eating a sandwich and watching JFK's motorcade inch along Houston Street. His rifle, unwrapped from its brown paper package, is close at hand. From where he's sitting, he has a perfect view of the street below. And in a few seconds, he'll have an ideal vantage point from which to take his shot. The depository is located at the corner of Houston and Elm Street. And according to the route published in the newspaper, the motorcade will have to take a hard left turn onto Elm in order to get to the freeway. He can hardly believe his luck. That hairpin turn means the motorcade will have to slow to a virtual stop directly beneath his window. His target will be almost stationary. As the president's car pulls closer, Oswald can see that other factors are working in his favor. Here's Ron Kessler, author of In the President's Secret Service. Before the trip, one of JFK's aides told the Secret Service that JFK did not want a cover on the limousine. And then JFK personally told the Secret Service he did not want agents on the rear running board of his limousine. You know, it just looked bad. If those two agents had been on the rear running board, JFK would be alive today. A stationary target. No protective top on the car. No nearby Secret Service to come to the president's aid. Oswald could not have planned it better himself. He sets his lunch aside, half-eaten, and readies his mail-order rifle. One by one, the cars below begin to turn the corner in front of him. He can see the tiny figure of the president, the first lady in her pink suit sitting by his side. He squeezes the trigger and he misses. Disturbed by the sound, the pigeons on the rooftop take flight. Oswald quickly collects himself, doesn't wait for the reaction on the ground. With shaking hands, he aims again. This time he leans forward, the muzzle of his rifle emerging from the threshold of the open window. Down below, the president reaches for his throat. Oswald can hear a swell of noise from the crowd. People are starting to look up from the street, up at the tree line, at the buildings. For a third time, Oswald readies his rifle. He waits a full five or six seconds, steadying himself to ensure he's on the mark. Oswald can see the first lady climbing onto the trunk of the limousine. The crowd begins to roar as the car accelerates rapidly toward the freeway. Oswald stands, 
quickly hiding his rifle behind some cardboard boxes before rushing out the door and down the stairs. It's 12.32 p.m. and Lee Harvey Oswald is thirsty. Just 90 seconds earlier, he had shot the president in the head. Now, he's in the employee break room getting a soda. Here's Larry Sabato, director of the University of Virginia Center for Politics. He was uh, very calm. He'd accomplished his task. He wasn't sweating. Uh, He goes into the little lunchroom there and starts uh, getting a Coke from the machine, and a policeman comes in and says, stop, who are you? What's going on? Most suspects would have been desperate to escape the scene of their crime, but here was Lee Oswald having a drink, maybe even waiting to be caught. Why? I don't think he ever expected to live. He never expected to survive from the school book depository. And he was desperate. That's the word. And when he left Ruth Payne's that morning, he left his remaining money and left a note, you know, to buy Junie shoes. And he decided to go out in a blaze of glory. But if Oswald expected that killing JFK was going to be a suicide mission, fate intervened. Somebody from the school book depository uh, staff says, oh, he works, he works here. He's a full-time employee. At which point the police moved by him looking for someone who doesn't belong. Oswald belonged. He belonged there. And he stayed there just long enough for people to see him before he fled. The manhunt for JFK's killer could have ended right there in the break room of the Texas school book depository. But instead, at 12.33 p.m., three minutes after the shooting, Lee Harvey Oswald exits through the front door of the building, steps into the crisp fall air, and disappears into the crowd. What would lead some historians to believe that Oswald was on a suicide mission? Perhaps, for starters, because it wouldn't have been the first time he had tried to take his own life. The story of Lee Harvey Oswald is an unhappy one, going all the way back to his childhood. He was the second son of a single mother. His father died before he was born. His early life was unsettled and his relationship with his mother was strained. When he was 12, a psychiatrist described him as emotionally disturbed. Here's Larry Sabato again. The mother clearly had a lot to do with it. Uh, She was unusual. According to Robert, the older brother, she frequently said that the children held her back and she would have achieved so much more and they were so much trouble. And I don't think any child really wants to hear that from from, uh, his mother. Lee attended 22 different schools before dropping out to join the Marines at the age of 17. He excelled at marksmanship and trained as a radar technician, earning a security clearance along the way. But he was a poor fit for military life an outcast amongst his fellow Marines, especially because of his interest in communism. Ever hear of Karl Marx? He looked at the world and saw men as divided into two classes, workers and capitalists. In the Communist Manifesto, he called upon the workers, the proletarians, to rise up and overthrow their capitalistic masters. He cried, He's always been a misfit at every stage in his life. He was a misfit in the Marines. Maybe. Oswald, in response to the fact that he was so widely disliked, started to undertake 
the study of what would be the most offensive thing possible to the Marine Corps and to his fellow Marines. Socialism and communism and Karl Marx, and he enjoyed uh, letting them know that he was in fact studying that. He was a very mixed up person, yet he was also a highly intelligent person. He's been underrated in some respects. He's not just a drifter and a crazy guy. He was different, he was brighter. Oswald's unusual behavior in the Marines would earn him two court-martials and a demotion from private first class to private. But no one could have predicted what Oswald would do in 1959. At the age of 19, he left the Marines and secretly traveled to Moscow, intending to defect to the Soviet Union. He wanted to do the most outrageous thing possible, and that was it. It was almost unheard of. I think it was under 25 people from the West ever defected to the Soviet Union because it really wasn't a worker's paradise. But for him, it was a way of indulging his desire to be significant, to do things differently, to follow a very unusual path to greatness. And he began to believe, I think even in the Marine Corps, he was headed for greatness. Oswald had grown up unwanted by his mother. He struggled in school and was ostracized by his fellow Marines. But now in Russia, he had finally come to a place he thought he truly belonged. It was his chance to start a new life. But on October 21st, 1959, he received some devastating news. The Soviets had refused his application for citizenship and he would have to leave the country immediately. He returned to his hotel room in Moscow, got in the bathtub and slit his wrist. At 12.59 p.m., 29 minutes after JFK was shot, Oswald arrives at his boarding house in the Oak Cliff section of Dallas. He's been sleeping here on weeknights and visiting his wife Marina on the weekends to try to patch things up. His weekly rent of $8 doesn't buy him much. You couldn't even call it a room. Just a private area with a bed and a place to store his few possessions. His landlady sits near the entrance, watching the news. She sees Oswald rush past, but her attention is trained on the TV. Four minutes later, Oswald hurries past again, now wearing a light jacket. He doesn't say goodbye and he slams the door behind him as he leaves. His landlady couldn't have known, but Oswald hadn't just come home for a change of clothes. He had come home for his pistol. Here's Dale Myers, author of the book With Malice. It's just speculation, of course, but I think he was surprised that he got out of the building. And so it was like, now what? I haven't planned anything. So the first thing he thinks is, well, I got to arm myself. So he goes back to his room, gets his pistol. After he left the rooming house, zipping up his jacket with the pistol tucked in his belt, he eventually headed south. At the same moment, a Dallas police officer named J.D. Tippett is steering his squad car towards Central Oak Cliff. He's been called away from his usual beat to join the hunt for the president's assassin. By now, police on the scene at the book depository have discovered that Oswald is missing and a description has gone out over the radio. It's a dragnet. He's been drawn into the Oak Cliff area, J.D. Tippett, to patrol. He's looking for suspicious activity, suspicious behavior. He's only two and a half miles from downtown. An assassin who could have escaped the book depository could have walked that distance. 
in that time. The general description was very vague. White male, about 30, five foot eight. Okay, slender build, 165 pounds. I mean, how many people fit that description? Officer Tippett has stopped nearly a dozen men who fit that vague description by the time he turns his car onto 10th Street. Something catches his eye. An eyewitness named Helen Markham would later recall what happened next. She had left her room and is walking to a bus stop that's another block away. She stops at that corner and she's waiting for traffic to clear. One of them is the police car passes right in front of her. As she watches it moving right to left, she notices as it pulls over to the curb about 100 feet away from her, there's a guy walking down the sidewalk. The guy comes over to the passenger side of the car. He leans down. He appears to be talking to the officer very briefly, maybe 10 seconds, through an open vent window. Then the officer opens the driver's door and starts to get out. According to Helen Markham, he's moving very slowly, very calm, doesn't seem to be in a hurry, gets around the driver's door and starts to walk toward the front of the police car. And when he gets even with the left front tire of the police car, Oswald, who she identifies as Oswald, steps back from the car, suddenly pulls the pistol off from underneath his jacket and fires several quick shots across the hood of the car, striking the officer three times in the chest and once in the head. So he's killed instantly. On any other day, under any other circumstance, Officer Tippett would have been nowhere near 10th Street. On any other day, there would have been almost zero chance that he would have been killed in the line of duty. In fact, it had been seven years since the last time a Dallas police officer had been killed at work. But today, he happened to cross paths with Lee Harvey Oswald, another man who, if not for incredible coincidence, should never have been there himself. Back in 1959, Oswald's suicide attempt at a Moscow bathtub would actually turn out to be a lifeline. As a result of his self-inflicted injury, the Soviets moved Oswald into a hospital and placed him under psychiatric observation. He continued to meet with government officials and in time was granted permission to stay in Russia. Here's Gerald Posner, author of Case Closed. They move him to this small provincial capital outside of Moscow and Minsk. He ends up meeting a, a Russian girl and marrying her, Marina Oswald. I think that Marina liked the fact that he, in fact, stood out, that he, he was this American there with uh, learning Russian and had a pretty good handle on it and talked about politics and then talked about the states so that by the time they decide they're going to get married, when Oswald eventually makes the decision that he's no longer happy in Russia and wants to go back to the United States, there isn't a fight with him. Life behind the Iron Curtain wasn't all that Oswald had imagined. He wrote in his diary in 1961, I am starting to reconsider my desire about staying. The work is drab. The money I get has nowhere to be spent. No nightclubs or bowling alleys, no places of recreation except the trade union dances. I have had enough. We call him a Marxist or a leftist, but Oswald's philosophy was unusual. I do think that when he defected to the Soviet Union, he was a Marxist, but he had his own unusual mix into it. And eventually it becomes almost a bit of anarchy because he learns to dislike the Soviet Union almost as much as he dislikes the United States. 
the Soviet Union has ruined communism. They took what Marx and Engels had come up with and they somehow bastardized it and polluted it as the US with capitalism was a place that he didn't like. So he wasn't happy in either place. Disillusioned with Soviet life, by 1962, Oswald was ready to move back to the United States with Marina and their newborn daughter. There was just one problem. He was a traitor. Oswald had offered to share military secrets with the Russians and declared his intent to renounce his U.S. citizenship. Looking back, it's mind-boggling to think that the United States would ever allow him to return. People often say, oh my God, how is it possible that you could defect the Soviet Union in the heart of the Cold War and then the Americans would take you back at some point? That's imp that, that couldn't be. In retrospect, it was insane. Here's Larry Sabato again. I've never fully understood it. Now, they did have a fund in the State Department designed to help uh, former defectees and others to return to the Soviet Union. There was money for that. And I've always believed it had to have been because the CIA slash and the FBI or uh, NSA, who knows, wanted the opportunity to have these people back so they couldn't help the Soviets or the Chinese or the North Koreans or whoever anymore. Let that sink in for a minute. The United States had a program to help people who had betrayed the country come home. And so against all odds, Oswald is granted permission to return to Dallas in 1962. It's easy to imagine that if Oswald had been required to remain in Russia, JFK would have left Dallas alive. It's one thing for Oswald, an avowed communist and Soviet defector, to be allowed to return to Dallas. But it's another thing for him to end up working in a building that JFK just happens to pass on his journey through town. And it's still another thing for him to decide to risk his life to do something as radical as attack the president. Oswald hadn't been happy in the Marines. He wasn't happy in Russia. And so it can't come as any surprise that misery followed him to Dallas as well. By 1963, his marriage to Marina is on the rocks. Here's Gerald Posner again. When they came back to the U.S., he felt much more under the pressure cooker. He didn't like it. He was trying to get his foothold of what he was going to do. Marina didn't speak English. They were with a group of Russian emigres that sort of took them under their wing in Dallas. But the tension in the marriage was much higher. And he became physically abusive to Marina, I believe, for the first time in Dallas shortly after they returned. And over a period of time, he really torments her in many, many ways. She feels trapped. She's come over here to the U.S. She's in a marriage that's turned physically abusive. Oswald drifts from job to job, frequently getting fired, never staying any place for more than a few months. He is obsessed with politics, trying to rally local support for Fidel Castro. And in April of 1963, he attempts to assassinate Edwin Walker, a retired army general who held anti-Castro views. Violent, unemployable, extreme. It's all too much for Marina to bear, and she moves herself and her now two young daughters into the home of a friend. Here's Larry Sabato. Oswald is miserable, as he usually was. He wasn't eating regularly because he had no real source of income. His wife, Marina, of course, had moved out with Ruth Payne. He had no job, no prospects. I think he really did hope and expect that he could put his married life back together. But to do that, he had to have 
a steady job. He had to have an income. Uh, and that was the genesis via Ruth Payne of uh, getting the job at the uh, a school book depository. With the help of Ruth Payne, Oswald accepts a job making $1.25 an hour at the Texas School Book Depository on October 14th, just a month before JFK's trip to Dallas. He was hoping against hope that his marriage would come back together and he could be, if not a normal father, at least a father to the two children, and then use that as the cornerstone of rebuilding his life. And yet it just wasn't to be because he wasn't normal enough for Marina to take him back. And that was the key moment, by the way, in the on Assassination Eve, that I don't think Oswald would have done this. He thought about it, but I don't think he would have done it had Marina not made it very clear that it was over, that, that was, wasn't gonna come back together, was never gonna happen. And he decided to go out in a blaze of glory. And the rest is history, unfortunately. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. November 22nd, 1.15 p.m. Officer J.D. Tippett lies lifeless in the street, and Lee Harvey Oswald has just killed someone for the second time today. But this time, he's done it in full view of numerous witnesses. So he does the only thing he can do. He runs. It's only moments before the police begin to close in on him. Here's Dale Myers again. Meanwhile, back at the book depository, they had just discovered the rifle hiding up in the boxes up on that sixth floor. And suddenly, they hear a citizen come on the police radio. After Tippett had been shot, there was a, a citizen who happened to be driving by, came upon the officer, realized that police needed to be notified, got into Tippett's police car and used his own police radio to notify the dispatcher. So suddenly you have these officers around the book depository and, and all of a sudden, here's a citizen on the radio reporting there's an officer down here in Oak Cliff. So immediately, a number of officers respond to that shooting. The authorities immediately suspect that the murder of the president 
and the death of Officer Tibbet are linked. Anybody who didn't think that has to be an idiot. It was a very unusual occurrence to have a police officer shot in the line of duty. And, uh, and so here's one that happens 45 minutes after the assassination of the president and just two and a half miles from the presidential assassination. So yeah, there were a lot of cops that thought this has to be connected. They poured into the area and were looking for the suspect who now the trail was cold. They found a ditch jacket, but nobody knew where he was. 1.17 PM, Oswald is several blocks away from the scene of the Tippett murder. He's moving cautiously to avoid attention. He needs to find somewhere to lay low until things calm down. A police car speeds down the street. He tucks into the vestibule of a shoe store and pretends to be examining the goods on display. He heaves a sigh of relief, scanning the street to make sure the threat has passed. A building across the way catches his eye, the Texas Theater. Quickly and carefully, Oswald slips past the ticket booth and settles into a seat in the third row from the back of the darkened theater. Unfortunately for him, his escape has not gone unnoticed. Oswald actually slips into the vestibule of Hardy's shoe store, and the young manager that's working there sees him feigning to look at shoes, but he's looking over his shoulder at the retreating police cars. And once they retreat, he sees Oswald step back to the sidewalk and continue walking west down in the direction of the Texas Theater, which is only a few doors down. And as he's approaching the Texas Theater, he sees Julia Postal, the ticket taker, step out of the ticket box and step to the curb. And she's looking up the street because a police car has just zipped past both of them. So she's got her back to Oswald. He sees Oswald slip behind her back and go into the Texas theater. So between those two incidences, the fact that he looks suspicious in his own shoe store vestibule and the fact that he slipped past the Texas theater ticket taker, he walks up the street. He says, hey, did that guy buy a ticket? And she kind of turned around half expecting to see the guy that she remembers out of the corner of her eye approaching. And he's not there. He didn't pass her. Well, no, he didn't buy a ticket. He says, I think that's who they're looking for. You should call the police. Oswald is just starting to relax when suddenly the lights in the theater come up. The projector clicks to a stop. Several police officers emerge from the front of the theater, scanning the audience. Lee hunches down low in his seat. Get on your feet, a voice rings out behind him. Oswald stands slowly to face the officer. He can sense others closing in, approaching from the far side of the aisle. It's all over now, he shouts. He swings at the officer with all of his might. His punch connects and the cop falls back into the seats in pain and surprise. Oswald reaches into his shirt and grasps his hidden pistol. The officer senses the danger and grabs for the weapon as Oswald pulls the trigger. Oswald tenses himself for the recoil, but none comes. And the webbing of his hand gets caught. And as the hammer comes down, it catches the little webbing between his index finger and his thumb. And the gun doesn't go off. In the meantime, the other cops have moved in very quickly. They pounce on Oswald and they subdue him. And he's taken out of the theater. As he's being dragged out, he starts screaming, I am not resisting arrest. I protest this police brutality. 
Oswald continues to scream as he's marched from the theater towards a squad car. A large, angry crowd is gathered to see him carried away. On his way out of the building, he passes a poster for the film he's been watching. The movie on the screen was War is Hell. There's a little slug line on the movie poster. And what it said was, there are some things that only the people that do them understand. Could it really only be chance that brought Lee Harvey Oswald from a Moscow bathtub to the back seat of a Dallas squad car in just over three years? The U.S. government had allowed him to return to Dallas despite his defection to Russia. The book depository just happened to be located along the route of JFK's motorcade. And Oswald's marriage finally fell apart at the worst possible time. These seemingly unconnected events aligned to provide Lee Harvey Oswald with the means, motive, and opportunity to pull off one of the most outrageous crimes of the 20th century. Here's Gerald Posner again. The Lee Harvey Oswald that's working at the Texas School Book Depository, history ends up landing in front of him when he reads the paper and finds out that the motorcade that JFK is going to be in will come directly in front of the building in which he's working and suddenly has the chance of killing the president of the United States. Lee Oswald could have been in Moscow on November 22nd, 1963, on the sixth floor of a building shooting at Nikita Khrushchev. He was ready to throw a a cog into the machinery of government in the U.S. or the Soviet Union. He really despised both. It turned out that it was in America that he had the chance first. The car carrying Oswald pulls away from the front of the Texas theater. After a moment, he speaks up. What is this all about, he asks. The officer seated to his right tells Oswald that he's under arrest for the murder of J.D. Tippett. Police officer been killed, Oswald responds. I hear they burn for murder. Well, said the officer, you may find out. At 2 p.m., 90 minutes after the shooting of President Kennedy, the squad car carrying Lee Oswald pulls into the Dallas Police Department. Press has already gathered outside to get a look at him. When they bring him inside, Oswald will be interrogated. They'll learn about his communist ties, about his broken marriage. They'll learn that he met with the KGB just weeks before the shooting. Investigators will try to reconstruct the killing. Did the fatal shots really come from the window of the school book depository? Did Oswald act alone? Or did he have help? But before they get answers to those questions, investigators will find themselves having to answer another one. How could they allow Oswald to be murdered? On live television, no less, while still in their custody. That's next time on 24 Hours After. Thanks for listening to 24 Hours After, a History Channel original produced by Awfully Nice and hosted by me, Steve Gillen. For more moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. Special thanks to our guests, Ronald Kessler, Dale Myers, Gerald Posner, and Larry Sabato. 24 Hours After is written and produced by Jesse Burton and Jane Ackerman. Editing and sound design by Bang Audio Post. Our project manager is Kadi Kamakate. Our supervising producers are McKamey Lynn and Ben Dixstein. Our executive producers are Jesse Burton, 
Katie Hodges, Jesse Katz, and me, Steve Gillen. Special thanks to The Cutting Room and Hega Studios. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review 24 Hours After wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.